Hey everybody, I'm Amber. And I'm Maddie. And, and we're, we're Witches Talking, Talking Tarot. And we've brought you a show all about the occult. We're talking different lores and mythology. Yes, creature features, cryptids, aliens, you name it, we'll cover it. Conspiracy theories. Absolutely. And pagan holidays and 100%. Practices. All eight of them. Yes. Spiritual living, you yeah. name it. That's right. We've got it for you. So if you want, come sit with us for a spell and let us make you laugh. We are Witches Talking Tarot. Thanks, everybody. Given a little spark of madness. Followed Mr. Carpenter. What he saw couldn't have been a dream. It was too real. But it couldn't have been true either. It was too deliciously frightful. Trying to catch yesterday. Old times are only good when you've had them. Night after night, all alone. Daddy's all pent up. Let's freak. Third irrational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Hello, this is Patrick O'Reilly from the Vintage Video Podcast, filling in for the lovely Ebony with some thoughts on Terry Gilliam's 2009 fantasy film, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. A thousand years ago, Dr. Parnassus made a deal with the devil. Stop! You're probably not a betting man, are you? To gain immortality. It's been a while. But this came with a price. Any child would at the age of 16 belong to him. <gasps> now, a mysterious outsider. Can you put a price on your dreams? We'll take the traveling show beyond their imaginations. The extraordinary Dr. Parnassus. What are you doing? Trying to save your daughter's life, sir. You could save her. What do you say? First to five souls. Voila. Voila. When Ebony first asked for volunteers for this guest hosting series, I wanted to pick a film with some thematic relevance and landed on this title, wherein, due to unforeseen circumstances, the Australian lead was replaced by several guest leads in the final product. Actor Heath Ledger was born in Perth, Western Australia, and upon graduating from high school, drove straight to Sydney to pursue an acting career. He found quick success in several popular Australian television programs and films, and soon after, international acclaim for appearances in films like Ten Things I Hate About You and A Knight's Tale, as well as celebrated dramatic turns in films like Monster's Ball and Brokeback Mountain, for which he earned his first Academy Award nomination. I wish I knew how to quit you. Then why don't you... Why don't you just let me be, huh? Because of you, Jack, that I'm like this. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm, just, I'm nowhere. Oh. In the early 2000s, director Terry Gilliam was putting together a fictionalized fantasy retelling of the lives of the Brothers Grimm. 
the legendary German folklorists whose fairy tales have been adapted into innumerable children's films across the history of cinema. I've got to say from the start that it, uh, this has nothing to do with the real Brothers Grimm, <laughs> other than the fact that they were collectors of German folk tales and they... Uh, and uh, we owe them a lot of thanks. So rather than thanking them, we're using them. We don't want people to think that this is the biography of the Grimm brothers because you know, that's a completely different story. This is a much more fun, lighthearted uh, angle uh, to get into the world of their fairy tale. Ironically, Gilliam had his sights set on Johnny Depp for the part, but Depp was busy at the time with pre-production on Burton's Willy Wonka remake, and Ledger was brought in to replace him. The actor and director hit it off right away. Everything was special about Heath. That's the extraordinary thing. Anybody who worked with Heath or met him along the way knew this is the one, the chosen one. He really felt that with Heath. Mm. There was, you know, an incredible, I mean, the talent was, was, we only saw the tip of the iceberg, let's be honest about that. He was completely honest and fearless. There was no, there was no skin around him. He just... It was extraordinary. We all felt, I mean, when we were doing Brothers Grimm, he was like 24, I think, 26, I can't I thought he was older than Matt Damon. Matt was in his mid-30s. I mean, we all thought, how, who is this kid? I mean, I, I was shocked by how young he was, how wise he was, and what an old soul he was, all in there. The release of the Brothers Grimm was fumbled by distributors and misunderstood by critics, as Gilliam films are wont to be, but still managed to pay for itself with international box office. When word broke that Ledger had been cast as the Joker opposite Christian Bale's Batman in Nolan's The Dark Knight, the immediate response from the majority of the DC fan base was enraged disappointment. To them, Ledger was little more than a pretty face. Too pretty, they thought, to portray the demented clown prince of crime. Of course, in time, the film would prove them wrong, and Ledger would more than earn his second Academy Award nomination. Do I really look like a guy with a plan? You know what I am? I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. You know, I just do things. At this time in Gilliam's career, the director was proving himself less and less compatible with the modern studio system. By now, his films required the coaxing of independent financers, but because Gilliam has always been an actor's director, he was often able to drum up funding by attaching high-profile cast members with whom he'd maintained steady relationships. Just prior to Grimm, Johnny Depp had helped Gilliam get The Man Who Killed Don Quixote off the ground, but the film's subsequent implosion, heartbreakingly memorialized in Keith Fulton and Louis Pepe's documentary Lost in La Mancha, seemed at the time to be the nail in the coffin of Gilliam's filmography. My default position of failure and still-to-be-achieved uh, ideas is The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. This just keeps coming up again and again, and it keeps crashing. So it's the Sisyphean moment of my life. Whether I really should be continuing, even trying to do it, I don't know, my wife says, walk away from it. The problem is once you start trying to make Quixote in any form, you become Quixote, and then you're trapped in the endless dream and reality collision <laughs> that is your life. But Gilliam persisted. And after Grimm, he began development on another story called The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and I'm finally getting to the point. Gilliam reached out to his former Grimm brother, Heath Ledger, to play the central role of Tony Shepard, and much of the film's budget was contingent on Ledger's involvement. The film tells the story of an old-fashioned traveling theater troupe struggling to survive in modern London. Ladies and gentlemen, step up! Step up! I'm Mercury, the messenger of the gods, invites you. Invite you, sir. Tonight, 
for one night only here at this very venue to enter into the mind, the very great mind of Dr. Parnassus. Dr. Parnassus! The troupe is led by the titular Dr. Parnassus, played by Christopher Plummer. Terry Gilliam called me out of the blue and said, um, I'd like you to play my sort of title creature that I'm doing. It's a wonderful old man. And I, I thought, yeah, they're, they're probably he called because there are very few old men really left who are a- actors who can actually speak. <laughs> and I'm one of them. And I get luckier every year because they get fewer and fewer. And as long as I'm still kicking and alive, I, I can report for duty. And rounded out by his daughter Valentina, played by fashion model turned climate change activist Lily Cole, whose podcast Who Cares Wins is absolutely worth checking out. Carnival Barker Anton, played by Peter Three, a.k.a. Andrew Garfield. And finally, Vern Minimi Troyer as Parnassus's dwarf assistant, Percy. As it turns out, Dr. Parnassus was immortal and won the heart of Valentina's mother in a deal with the devil, known in this film as Mr. Nick, played by the incomparable Tom Waits. He couldn't win over the beautiful woman at his advanced age, so in exchange for mortality, Parnassus promised his daughter's soul on her 16th birthday, just three days from the start of the film. The group are traveling between venues one night when they spot a man played by Heath Ledger hanging from a bridge but still kicking and reel him up. He claims not to recall his own name, and in exchange for saving his life, they put him to work gathering crowds, a task for which he seems unnaturally suited. Mr. Nick appears again and adjusts his wager with Parnassus, and now it's a race. They are charged with collecting five souls each, and the first across the line wins. What do you got to lose? Look, you could end up winning. You could, you could save her. Hmm? What do you say? First to five souls. First to five? Hmm? No tricks? No? No, no cheating? No, no cheating. I'd say yes. Day okay. When he's made aware of the deal, the supposed amnesiac has some ideas to draw a bigger audience that involve significant changes to the show, and he meets with predictable resistance from the rest of the troupe. Change a show? Who the freaking hell do you think you are? Don't be so afraid of change, mate. In order to collect the souls, Parnassus must utilize the centerpiece of his traveling show, the Imaginarium itself, which, from the front, appears to simply be a trick mirror with reflective sheets hanging behind a mirror frame with a seam down the middle to allow passage between them. But on the other side, we're in a TARDIS-esque superspace much larger than the stage and often rendered entirely in CG. Heath Ledger had essentially shot all his scenes outside the Imaginarium when the production took a scheduled break for the Christmas holiday, during which Gilliam would work approving concept art for the scenes to take place within the Imaginarium. Ledger left first to spend time with family in Australia and then some time in New York, but unfortunately never made it back to set. The actor Heath Ledger was found dead today in an apartment here in New York City. He was just 28 years old. His Oscar nomination for playing Nolan's Joker would lead to a win, but a posthumous one. And the Oscar goes to Heath Ledger in the Dark Knight. Only the second posthumous acting statue in the history of the awards after Peter Finch's lead role in Sidney Lumet's Network. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! 
Heath Ledger was staying in the Manhattan apartment of good friend Mary-Kate Olsen and had accidentally overdosed on sleep medication, which reacted fatally with other prescription meds in his system. He was discovered the following afternoon and CPR was administered unsuccessfully. When word got back to the set of Parnassus, Gilliam was obviously devastated at the loss of his friend and naturally assumed the movie was finished. They had not yet shot any scenes in the Imaginarium. The film stopped down indefinitely, but with time, Gilliam began to conceive of solutions to salvage the footage of what would become Heath Ledger's final film. It was very interesting, that experience of trying to solve the problem when your main actor dies. And I thought I'd had a hard time with uh, Munchausen. I thought it was a hard time with, with uh, Quixote. But mm. this was, those were like, sort of like exercise for this mm. one. And yeah. if I hadn't been through those experiences, I bet I would have caved in on Parnassus. But I didn't. Would you? Yeah, I think I would have. Because I I, at the time, I didn't know what to do. And I also didn't want to do anything because you just lost a very close friend mm. um, who was that kind of vitality and talent and energy, and it's gone, vanished. And, and, but, you know, I was surrounded by people who had seen Lost in La Mancha who had seen, and said, we're not going to let this happen again. Yeah. And they yeah. were the ones that you know, kept me going until I, my head started yeah. spinning again. His idea was to compose the Imaginarium scenes in full CG, which would have inflated the film's budget beyond its breaking point. But eventually, the decision was made to recast Ledger with three separate actors to correspond with his three separate trips through the Imaginarium. We had to find a way of preserving his last performance. And so you call his friends and you discover how many great actors loved Heath and they come to the rescue. So the whole thing is this incredible, tragical, magical journey, which is really what the story is about as well. That's the horrible thing, how the story and the making of the film are so entwined how imagination can overcome the most horrible things, and, and we did it. The first time, he's replaced with Johnny Depp, who Ledger himself had replaced four years earlier in Gilliam's Grimm. Depp had previously appeared in Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Finish the fucking story! and in the failed first attempt at The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. The film did eventually come together in 2018 with Adam Driver in the lead. The second and third Imaginarium visits replaced Ledger with Jude Law and Colin Farrell. It was important to Gilliam that the substitute performers be personal friends of Ledger's, so when Tom Cruise offered his services to take over a scene, Gilliam had to turn him down in an effort to keep the project in the family. Which is why the title card that closes the film reads, A Film from Heath Ledger and Friends. Depp, Law, and Farrell donated their pay from the film to Ledger's daughter, left out of her father's will by a logistical oversight. So... We got together, three, three actors, uh, other, two other actors, Colin uh, Farrell and Jude Law, myself, went in and finished up the role, basically, for Heath. And uh, basically all we said was just give Heath, it's Heath's money and it should go to Matilda. I think it's a pretty unique situation. I can't think of this ever happening before. And it's a really positive demonstration to me of the, the kind of community of film. And it seemed fitting that Heath's work was respected and continued. And also for me, as a huge fan of Terry's, that his film was completed. And Overall, I think the guest actor solution works. It probably helps that each new actor starts their scene in the same Plague Doctor mask to hide their identity at first so that by the time they're revealed, you almost don't recognize the actor has changed. The strengths of the film are the same across the entire Gilliam crop. We have comprehensive world building that allows this antiquated theater production to still feel at home in the modern London setting. 
In plot and visuals, it bears a striking resemblance to Gilliam's earlier work on The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and comes from the same writing partner, Charles McCune. Plummer's depressed and often intoxicated mystic takes a backseat to the story's younger players. Ledger's performance is understated and a bit underwritten, but always engaging, due to his natural magnetism as a performer, but even his work is overshadowed by relative newcomers Andrew Garfield and Lily Cole. Just a year shy of the one-two punch of The Social Network and The Amazing Spider-Man that would catapult him into stardom, Garfield comes to the story with the relaxed confidence of a longtime Gilliam collaborator. I remember there was a moment, because I, I, like, I was such a big fan of Heath from, from a bunch of his films, and I, I, um, I was, you know, I really wanted him to, to feel like we were equals, and I really wanted him to feel like we could, we could play together, and, uh, you know, we'd, if, if he give, gave me something, I'd give something back, you know what I mean? Mm. And that's really, that was really important to me, and I think the, the first major scene we had together, um, afterwards he said, he said something really generous to me, and he said, um, that was the most fun I'd, I'd, I've had all shoot. And, uh, and then our relationship became um, that of a mutual respect, as opposed to just, just me hero worshipping him. <laughs> um, so, so I think that was a real moment of, uh, of a shift and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, a place where I felt the sun suddenly came out and uh, I could relax and um, be, be comfortable in the position that I was um, thrown in, you know. (laughs) His energy specifically reminded me of Eric Idle's Berthold character from Munchausen, a sort of unwilling subordinate sidelined by the romantic pursuits of the lead. Lily Cole is absolutely enchanting as Valentina Parnassus. It's a shame she doesn't get more work, because like Ledger's Joker, she's more than just a pretty face here, and her measured performance betrays her short filmography. Of course, I would be remiss not to mention Tom Waits as Mr. Nick, well, I'm, I play the devil. I don't, I don't play a devil or somebody who's kind of evil. I play the devil. And, uh, it's kind of a curious uh, conundrum. How do you play the devil? So how do you play an archetype that large, that uh, deep in history? And, I, you know, um, my, I finally realized that I was just going to have to play it myself. Like, I play it, it's my devil. Not especially unlike any other Tom Waits character, but you don't hire Waits to play someone else, you hire Waits to play Waits. As far as weaknesses, I can only point to the production value of the CG backdrops of the Imaginarium. No doubt a budgetary restraint. With the full backing of a studio, Gilliam might have been able to reproduce this manic wonderland practically, but CG, even good CG, between 2000 and 2010 ages notoriously poorly, and these sequences are unfortunately no exception. As far as the storytelling goes, Gilliam has always seemed to value style over substance, and in this case, the script flounders a bit in the third act. A major turn in the plot comes when Mr. Nick is willing to change the bet late in the game, offering Parnassus a new opportunity to save his daughter's soul. But as Mr. Nick himself admits, Parnassus has nothing to lose by agreeing to it, and it's unclear what even motivates the offer. It might have made more sense for Nick to come back with a double-or-nothing pitch, throwing the doctor's soul into the betting pot this time. Surely the soul of a formerly immortal man is worth more than any old soul off the street. The details of the contest itself are somewhat hazy too, as it's implied that Nick will collect his souls in some nefarious way, and Parnassus will collect them by way of some admirable alternative. But when we see the hunt in action, there is no discernible difference in their methodologies. They both lure people into rooms where they either sign their soul away to one person or the other. The only difference comes afterward, where Nick tends to christen this contract with a deadly explosion. 
Heath Ledger's Tony character also takes a sudden turn near the end of the film, from the generally amiable conman character, to a cutthroat mastermind, willing to throw all his new friends to the lions, and again seemingly unmotivated. I can't say for certain how much the draft changed in the wake of Ledger's passing, and it's possible there was more to film in the arc that didn't reach the screen, but the seeds of this potential for violence should have been sown earlier in the plot. Altogether, this gets three and a half stars out of four from me, and I have no doubt that Ledger's continued involvement would have brought it up to the four-star line. I think that's all I have to say about the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. If you haven't had the chance to check it out, I do recommend taking a look, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the effectiveness of this whole substitute actor situation. Special thanks to Ebony for this opportunity to talk about something a bit fresher than my normal fare, and another special thanks to you all for listening. On the Vintage Video Podcast, we'll be reviewing every single wide release of the 1980s in chronological order. Over 250 episodes to enjoy and thousands more to come. John enters the store now to order another can of ether. I picture him outside like Homer with the gas hall. <laughs> when for you, when for me. I also like to think about that the kids renew their vow not to talk about the murder. By, by murdering someone. <laughs> They're taking a blood oath with someone else's blood. This stuff is seven times more powerful than uranium. And yeah. they, they open up the vault that it's contained in, not wearing any kind of protective nope. gear. Yeah. And it's wooden crates. Wooden crates. It's like the guys in Chernobyl picking up the graphite rocks yeah. and going, meh, because there's rocks. Hugging the elephant foot. <laughs> just like, oh, this thing's smooth. It's so warm. He turns to dial the number from the classified ad without even thinking about the numbers. <laughs> we know this because we can hear his thoughts, and he's talking about how AJ was right that ninjas are misdirecting him. They're misdirecting him. I really wish that he'd turn to the phone and been like, six, six. Vintage Video. We're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. You were just listening to the Film Spark podcast. For all your film needs and more, like what you heard, give us a shot. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, Good Pods, and more. Or follow the socials at film underscore spark underscore pod. You know what? Just follow us on everything. Check out the link tree linktr.ee forward slash filmsparkpod find us follow us give us a shout we always want to hear from you you're still here it's over go home go 